Welcome to Blockchain for the Billions, where we explore the Web3 landscape and the hotspots of mainstream adoption. Let's get into it. Rebecca, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Hi, thanks for having me. For those that maybe don't know all about your background and your incredible career, can you share a little bit about what really brought you to the metaverse and Web3 and ultimately led you to build Laminal One? Yeah, sure. So I started my career in the music business at a really tumultuous time where a bunch of hackers were, were really resetting the value of, of content and to share music with their friends. And digital distribution was on was like top of mind. And how do we pivot to adjust to this kind of new future that's rolling out? And so that was pretty like, I think for me, that was a moment in my career, given how much I care about music, like music is oxygen to me, where I was just like, oh my God, like the, the industry is being redefined. And I want to be a part of that versus hanging on for dear life to an old business model. Because I thought ultimately it was bad for content, the, the way things were trending, which was, you know, the, the value was, cannot be reset to free. So I did that at EMI Capital Records. We started the International Digital Distribution Group. And then I went to film just in time for them to go through like the exact same trauma of like all of the business models being upended and, and being able to like see the positives of digital distribution, which allows you to take content that previously like didn't meet the requirements for traditional distribution. And you could kind of get around it now because it was a much cheaper way of getting that content, whether it's Kurosawa or Godard and they have smaller audiences, but you could still get it out to people because it costs less now. Didn't have to meet box office requirements. So there were some positives happening there, but Back to music at the time, there, as digital music was becoming more and more prevalent, there was a former head of engineering for Apple who started basically an MP3 player business. It was a streaming music player, hardware and software. And, and I joined that to lead their partnerships and, and marketing and with some of the same crew actually from EMI. And then we were acquired by Dell almost immediately, which was not what I signed up for. But I learned a ton during my time at Dell about how you scale and like the realities of going mainstream and what it takes to get into assortment and, and stores and what it takes to get people to part ways with the cash in their wallet, which I think was a really fortunate experience because a lot of emerging tech doesn't, doesn't get that. So I eventually just through a series of startups and, and acquisitions ended up going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole with new technology and emerging technology, moved up to Silicon Valley, worked for a positional tracking company, which actually this this past week was just acquired by AMD. So we were working on computer vision and sensor fusion and uh, tracking technology because AR and VR and drones all really needed this capability. But if you remember, like Oculus didn't ship with controllers initially. And so one of the things that was really preventing content developers from getting on board and building great experiences was like that immersive capability, which is tracking. Like you, you needed to have tracking and there was outside in, but it was too complicated. It was like 72 steps to get people to set it up. It was just at the sort of inflection point. And so I learned that was like going back to grad school, like just to sit with those, with the engineering team and see where machine learning and computer vision, and all of these things were headed, which set me up really well to go to Magic Leap. And I went to Magic Leap at Leather Studios Group for four years. We had 11 different studios underneath that umbrella that were all developing content for AR and this new platform. And then when we pivoted to enterprise, you know, obviously Magic Leap raised four and a half billion dollars pre-revenue. And when we pivoted to enterprise, I stayed on in part to work with Peggy Johnson, who I just have tremendous respect for as a new CEO. 
And she asked me to lead the redesign of the operating system. And so I did that. I stayed on. We redid the operating system for Magic Leap 2 and the interaction model, and then also relaunched the brand. But I was ready to go after that. Like I've always been focused on consumer and this sort of intersection of entertainment and tech. So naturally, then the the next move was I had been working on location-based experiences as part of the studio mandate at Magic Leap. And I've been working with this group called The Sphere, The Sphere Project, which was the Madison Square Garden Sphere Project, which just just launched recently to a lot of acclaim. And that was like location-based immersive experience on the largest scale possible. And I think I had just gone through the ringer with like double-sided markets and having to build content for new platforms that had no addressable market right off the bat. And Sphere was like, well, you could get 17,000 people into like an immersive VR headset. I mean, that's kind of what it's it presented like, right? You have 40 kit capability, haptics in every chair, spatial audio that sends like chills right down your spine, 160,000 square foot of 16K. LED, which is just the pipeline for that is insane, right? And it's spherical. So that was like totally thrilling. And I was there and I was talking to Neil actually, because we'd worked together at Magic Leap. He had one of the studios that was under the umbrella there. And I was talking to him about adapting some of his content for Sphere. And because I just thought, God, like what, what a perfect fit. He said, I remember he was on tour for Termination Shock at the time. And he was like, I said, how's it going? And he was like, well, Facebook rebranded to Meta and everybody keeps asking me if Mark called me and asked me about Meta and what I think about the way that they're doing things and their interpretation of the metaverse. And he was like, I, I feel like I could either keep traveling around the world and, and talking about what everybody's doing wrong, or I could take a crack at, at building it the right way, the way that I sort of envisioned it, it should be. And then he asked me, he and, and Peter Vicenis, who's partnered up with a Peter, who's a longtime crypto entrepreneur, really from the ground up, like understands the tech and the economics of it. And they asked me to come on and lead it. And to be honest, like it took a little while for me to like, I mean, I think about four months of like reading and deep diving on the industry and around blockchain and around the original promise of crypto and versus where it ended up and or where it's at, I should say right now or in the bull run. And then figuring out like, why is this a critical component of the metaverse that we all imagine? And so I think like for me, throughout my career, there's been this recurrent theme of it's really important to protect storytelling and the arts are so absolutely critical to humanity in a way that we often sort of are dismissive of because it's not it's not immediately tangible the how critical it is to the human spirit and how important it is to imagination and envisioning that makes us so unique as a species and so i always wanted to protect that and you either there were just two choices it was like tech is moving really, really, really fast. There was this door opening where traditional Hollywood didn't quite understand like how to make things for that new world. And so there was just this great opportunity for all these sort of new creatives to emerge and start using these new tools to tell stories in new ways. And so that sort of continued. It was like, okay, I want to tell stories and I want to enable others to tell stories. And what's the tech that's required to do that in a really compelling way? So that's sort of how I, I ended up here. And I think this is the natural kind of next step. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have so much I want to dig into on your journey, but can we just kind of talk about, you know, what Lamina One specifically has set out to build here and kind of the vision behind Lamina One and the things you hope to accomplish at the company? Yeah. So I think it's important to just start with one sort of the connective tissue between 
Neil's vision and why he's the right founder for this company and this type of venture, which is that, you know, like the metaverse that was really so beautifully articulated in an unforgettable way in Snow Crash 30 years ago has been inspiring like technologists and creatives for ages. But it was never just about like a virtual world or jacking into a virtual world and abandoning the one we live in. It was always a bit of a cautionary tale about unchecked corporate control and centralization of power and greed. What happens then in terms of class and humanity and economy? And so one of the things that where where we saw a huge opportunity were blockchain and the sort of new technical stack that was emerging, of which blockchain is just a feature of, was the ability to really create an open platform for content distribution and monetization. So really an alternative to this kind of dominant platform trap that we see a lot of creators get stuck in. And what we saw going on on the blockchain side was that there were a ton of protocols out there that were doing a really great job of solving a very specific feature but they were lacking sort of the whole story, right? The platform design that brings, that moves markets and brings people on board to actually make great creative. So in the designing of that platform and, you know, to really upend distribution and monetization, it was like, okay, what are the criteria? It needs to be decentralized and transparent. It needs to be fundamentally built at the architecture level an interoperable ecosystem. So, you know, we built on Avalanche Consensus, we actually just announced a partnership with them this morning, which I'm super excited about. I think they have a super strong team as well as great tech. We, because we have how deeply we understand the content side of things, we're like, okay, we need to build some specialized subnets and we need to really automate a lot of this process away. It's really designed to be this kind of like super easy to use platform that stitches together a lot of the great things that the blockchain industry has brought to the table, but in a way that is usable and easy for content creators and eventually consumers. But like anytime you're building a product that caters to both, you kind of have to focus on one side first. And for us, it was like, well, you don't get any consumers unless you have great content. So let's make sure we have the creator tooling. I also think there's, we're not quite there yet, but there's a really interesting opportunity around the sort of algorithmic incentivization of fan bases around creators. Some people are starting to dabble in this area. I don't think anyone's cracked it yet, but I think there's huge potential to invest in like sort of the decentralized marketing or like as the film industry would call it PNA aspect of how you get content out there. So that's stuff we're kicking around, but we have a creator community now of like well over 51,000 that are regularly testing these features and making sure we have the smooth onboarding that we promised. There's so much to dive into there, but I really love that you guys connect the pieces because like you said, we see a very fragmented experience of the metaverse, of this like more immersive internet world where promise. And there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle that can do each individual thing, but no one that's really kind of creating the platform for creators to truly build on. So maybe you could share just a little bit about like what you're seeing that creator and developer community do on the platform today and kind of how they work with you and the Lamina One team. You know, we're, we're still pretty early. We're in beta. And we have about 23 early access partners, which we chose strategically, some to represent big platform sites like HTC Viverse and Qualcomm, and then others that are creating an AI-based game or a multiplayer interoperable MMO type world that's photorealistic. And so we tried to choose like a bunch of different types of storytellers, tooling providers, and platform level 
to really make sure we were understanding how it holds up and how the, the feature set holds up. Like anything in an early access program, like until it, it's reached a third level of maturity, like it's hard to get real traction on it. But there's about four or five partners that we're in pretty deep with that we're regularly testing those features and and making sure that like the SDK integration is working really well. So you can use Unity and you can use Unreal and you can plug in really simply there. Or that the onboarding process and the identity solution that we implemented is really smooth and easy to set up. So we're not quite at the full-on like content stage. I will say that the people that are interested in us and the people we're interested in are fundamentally thinking about content design and development in, in a really different way. It's not just porting something that already exists. They're thinking about how to pull in funding and how to be more nimble and how to leverage all the assets that they create in the process of launching a new story or a new game to give this sort of kind of chaptered economic rollout that represents, I think, what the open metaverse can be instead of these old models where it's like, we're going to raise a ridiculous amount of money. And then in three years, the promise of we'll make a big bet on, you know, this game coming out or we're going to go the traditional route of pre-selling distribution and rights to get a film out there when like, you know, maybe you could retain a lot more ownership of it yourself and start to propagate the story, engage interest in that story early on by releasing some of the early assets. We're looking for those models of projects that really represent fundamentally different ways of like creating content. Yeah. yeah I think like it's structuring it's, the economics. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite interesting because people mix up what Web3 is and they think it's crypto or they think it's blockchain. But what you're really talking about is kind of like all the pieces that can work together to create a completely new way of making content where maybe each asset has a life of its own that's in the film or each fan has a contribution and you're really creating a new ecosystem for content, which I think is so unique. The thing I think is most interesting and actually like regardless of how you feel about the film Sound of Freedom or whatever they did there, what the model that they employed was really interesting. And it's actually like a task that's really good for blockchain. It was essentially saying like, we have a film that's been made. No other studios have picked it up. And I see this all the time when I talk with creators about their VR projects, their AR projects, their film projects. We have a great story. We had a deal, it fell through, or I have to rework the budget or whatever. And they're sort of stuck in this process where they're waiting for the same traditional methods of funding to come through in order to like get going. It used to be that you got into bad deals like that, or you went that route because of this sort of black box of distribution and and sort of discoverability of that, right? Like you've had to meet certain requirements and certain visibility in order to get enough numbers to get investors to continue to invest and get, is this sort of snowball effect and the studios, the labels, this traditional venues had like a lock on that. And this new crop of technology has for the first time ever put autonomy within reach for a lot of creators and given them tools to even gauge out front. Would you pay to see this story made? Like, do you think this is interesting? And give them some early ways to participate in the framing of a story that they might then play a major role in propagating and then the success of that artist down the road. We just see some really interesting models and opportunities there that take advantage of what blockchain uniquely is very good at. Yeah. I mean, it's a perfect example of like how many people want their favorite artist to put out a new album. Like if you could be a part of funding that and helping bring that to life, you probably would, right? And this is the promise of Web3 and 
really the ethos of it is, you know, removing the middleman and like giving that direct relationship and those opportunities. So I'm really excited to see the future of this year. Yeah. As we know, Lamina One is a layer one and there's many, many different layers in this space. I feel like there's always a new layer one. There's always a new layer two. Can you talk about kind of how you guys plan to differentiate yourself and create this more community forward approach to your layer one? Yeah. I mean, number one, we're, I think the, the aspect of kind of curating together, just being customer focused really of like, what do these people need to get their projects off the ground? They are not going to participate in the current ecosystem. It is too complex. It's too difficult to use. It's a little scary and intimidating. So how do we like really simplify the onboarding process? So like we have the hub is your home base. It's really simple to set up. You can choose your avatar or whatever image you want to use to represent you in your profile. You can see your spaces, which are either content initiatives that you've created and spaces to play in with multiple different types of IP in there. You can have partner spaces, these types of things. And then a record of your recent transaction is there in places really to like discover experiences and then connect with others. And so the view is like, instead of it being about like right now, everything's pretty blockchain forward and we think that it should be very experience forward. And so that really shapes the whole way that we're thinking about the technical stack. And like right now in beta, you can do all the things that you can do on web. We're about to release mobile with like complete parity with, with web. And so I think like we try to avoid this are you a layer zero, layer yeah. one, you layer three, like layer threes now? Like, are you an app chain? Are you? Yeah. And we're like, oh, like I keep saying, like, it's so complex. And everybody, depending on which bag you hold, like you have a very different view of what a layer one should do. Or, And I just don't think it matters much. Like, this is the kind of stuff that we do when we don't have real use cases, like we yeah. obsess about language because language is really the only tool to differentiate one company from another. And there's no real use case that anybody understands yet outside of DeFi. I mean, people in finance and DeFi, and they're like, you know, they've got a lot of stuff to play with right now. But I think for mainstream adoption, we're really, we're really lacking. So yeah. we've tried to just stay out of like the layer one, layer two categorization of ourselves and just stay radically focused on like, who are we solving a problem for? And how do we create an ecosystem of people that have similar values and interests? So they hold value and they want to be there. And it isn't about wiping people out for speculation. That is going to be really important. That's primarily what guides all of our decisions. I will say, initially, when we first got started, we talked about ourselves as the layer one. And we did run into this issue where like we were always building, we were always a fork of avalanche. And we had some hypotheses about like where in the stack things needed to be fixed to enable a lot of the features that we wanted. But what we realized over time is as we were like forking that and basically like replicating something that was in market already, that like the real problems and the things we were trying to solve were actually at the application layer, you know, between creator and consensus. Like yeah. there's all these mm-hmm. problems you gotta solve. And that was robbing that focus from us being able to solve those things. So we've shifted a bit and then we dove in with Avalanche and said, you know, there's some things we're concerned about. Can you work with us on that? And it turns out those features are already on their roadmap. And there is like, there are different costs and there's definitely, there's a different kind of weight to carrying like the the consensus and, yeah. uh, you know, That's the speed and transaction ability like at the base layer. So 
we needed to think about that from an operational standpoint to be smart and nimble and efficient in our cash. Yeah, the language will fade into the background, right? The language is always key when we're starting out and we're trying to define things and we're trying to explain it. But blockchain will be in the background. People won't be talking about layer ones or spatial computing or any of these things. We'll just be talking about why we use it and why we enjoy it and how it makes our lives better. Yeah, it's funny you bring up spatial computing and there's a good story around like in terms of language. I'm a huge advocate of brands. I have a really strong protective inclination towards like brand and values and being consistent to them. And also what matters when you're talking about mainstream adoption. Like I said before, when you're defining a category, like in the absence of having really powerful use cases, we tend to like cling to these like words and and promises to differentiate ourselves. But in our use of those words, the ones that you select, like this was certainly the case that magically, when we were all battling like magically versus Microsoft and others about like mixed reality versus AR versus spatial computing. Initially, we called ourselves mixed reality. Then it was spatial computing. And when I took over the brand part, I really pushed for augmented reality. And and we had a lot of debates internally about this because my perspective on it is like the words that you're, that you choose to use often are like indicative of like your alliance and also this kind of insider status of like, why did you have to use a different word to determine it? Well, it's because I know technically what they're doing and what they're not doing. And so they shouldn't really call themselves that because they're not really doing that under the hood. And it's kind of this, like, it's an opportunity to talk about how smart we are, right? Like the way that we differentiate these words, but consumers don't care. And so when we were talking about, we did a, a study on like the usage of those words and just like the understanding and the and public markets of them. Now, of course, it helps that Apple is using spatial computing, but still, it's not a great use of time or money to try to convince people to talk about things in a way that is not natural for them. Mm-hmm. On a base level, like augmented reality is like, if I knew nothing about what you were doing, I could deconstruct those two words and go, you're changing something about my reality. Yeah. Like, Mm-hmm. And, and I can gather, I could guess without feeling totally isolated and alienated by the buzzwords, what you're starting to get at. And the truth is, whether it's mobile, which we used to call, you know, it's like dumb AR, like it's not actually doing real AR. So we're going to call ourselves spatial computing because we really understand the environment and have meshes and are building on it and have anchors. You know, none of that really matters. It's progressive. Like AR is going to progress to the point where it just has all of those features. It's just, that's the version that was available today. That doesn't mean that AR is always going to be mobile and dumb. Like it's going to evolve. Yeah. So I think the same about with the metaverse, people often ask us to define the metaverse, obviously because of Neil's history. And web three in the metaverse have suffered this tremendously over the last year. Like it's no great wonder. It's like you're, you're yeah. using a word that no one understands to describe another word no one understands. And you just end up in this, Snowball. Yeah. You end up with people asking you, like, so what does it actually mean? And like, you're, you're kind of just using it, words that they don't understand to describe other things when I think to your point, it's about solving a problem or creating a product. And like, if you make someone's life 10 times better, easier, more fun, cheaper, healthier, right. whatever it is, that's what you're doing. And it does, you don't have to know the terms. No, exactly. I mean, that was one of the lessons from Dell that was really valuable. And I've always used as a check on myself or when we're overcomplicating things, like understanding the level of simplicity or like make, to your point, make my life better, faster, more efficient, bring me more joy. Those are the basic things that get people to actually like decide whether they're going to spend money on you or whether they're going to 
buy toilet paper. Like, it's yeah. like, like people are, yeah. that's the common sort of problems people are struggling with is like how they allocate cash, you know? Mm-hmm. At its simplest, we, we just describe the metaverse as like the continued development and integration adoption of digital experiences. Like, so as long like as you, your kids are participating in Fortnite or Rob- or maybe you, but as, as long as like you're investing your yeah. time in digital worlds and you're spending on e-commerce and you're going to immersive experiences and exhibits, like it, that's all part of it. It's just an evolution of where we're going. And Web3, I think, was in that context, kind of a set of principles about how we should do it. Yeah. I mean, on this topic, I'm sure you're very well aware that Meta just announced their uh, Quest 3. And then right before that, Apple announced their Vision Pro. So how does the launch of these products kind of impact Lamina One or not impact Lamina One, but just kind of how are you guys thinking about how these products really impact what you're building in the landscape of the metaverse? Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a huge vote of confidence from two major players that content is just going to continually become Mm -hmm. more immersive and our worlds are going to just continue to get more seamlessly interconnected. And and it's an endorsement in content development, the importance of content development and driving those platforms. And so it's great in that sense. I don't think either had like a direct immediate impact on Lamina One other than like continuing to keep immersive technologies top of mind and like the, you know, investing in them a wise choice. But in many ways, like the rapid sort of iteration and, and deprecation of those devices and the amount of data that they're going to collect from every angle, I mean, inside of your homes, biometrics, like it, everything really reinforces, you know, strengthens our belief in open standards and platforms and returning privacy and, and prosperity back to individuals. Like, you know, people try to pit it as like take down a takedown sort of thing of like, I don't feel that way at all. Like centralized systems will continue to exist. And frankly, they're really good at delivering great user experience. It's it's sort of beautiful and painful for us to watch Apple unveil the vision. Oh my gosh. I think I posted on Twitter, like, Mm -hmm. and even for Meta, like there was an image that Meta put out of the living room Mm -hmm. with an app ecosystem and a tree that was like evolving as a widget, you know, representing something on your coffee table. Like it was identical to something we did at Magic in 2018 and and really in some ways, like it's hard to watch it because you're like, haven't we come further than that? But at the same time, I think what Apple did that was really, really smart and what they're really, really great at is they have this whole ecosystem of devices and so much brand trust. Of course. Yeah, that they can just really elegantly transition people into a new computing paradigm Mm -hmm. using things they're already familiar with. And that's the way to do it. Yeah. You know, one of the things I thought was really interesting was the photo, like the memories aspect, because Mm -hmm. if you're audio ray tracing and you're sort of, which allows for spatial audio to be, to feel really, really, great and your fidelity is there, you're basically taking something that already means something to people that they already know how to create. And you're just making it like slightly more immersive mm-hmm. and slightly more satisfying. And and that's like a great, smooth way to take to transition people and also take some of the weight off of them of constantly delivering great new content experiences like mm-hmm. in the back. Because it's going to take a while. I mean, it is hard to make really great immersive experiences. Uh, yeah. And it's hard. 
it's really interesting because like Apple is kind of doing the opposite of what you're speaking of in the sense where like it is a walled garden in some capacity, right? Like only so many people are going to be able to get on that platform. But to your other point, it's like everyone has an iPhone. So we're all like, we all know that behavior that it requires. I'm curious Mm -hmm. how you kind of compare the two devices or kind of your thoughts on the differences or if you even have a strong take on this, because I mean, we saw MetaQuest 3, they were like, and there's no battery pack and no cord. And it was like shots fired at the Vision Pro. And we're looking at, we were looking at these two, two of the biggest companies we interact with in the world, really, really going after this with slightly different approaches, right? We have the metaverse approach and we have the spatial compute approach. I'm just so curious to hear um, how you think about that uh, yourself in that Lamina one. But what's funny about it is like Quest also added pass-through, right? So Yeah, it's like just like vision. I'm like, we've known this was going to be the evolution of things. Like VR is really great for certain instances, like short periods of time, fully immersive. It serves you well to like exclude the rest of the world. But the vast majority of really influential use cases are in AR. Like I genuinely wholeheartedly believe that. So we knew it was like only a matter of time before VR headsets were going to start adding gas. Look, they are moving towards lower cost and trying to get some mainstream adoption by bringing the cost down. The feature set is good. It's really good to try to get, you know, like the ecosystem going. But in Apple's much more higher, you know, the higher price point. Yep. And I think they're more gradually rolling out features than most have been led to believe. Like if you're a developer on their insider list, like you're you're getting things early and you know the state that it's in. And that's not a criticism. This shit is really hard to do. That's yeah. the bottom line. But all that really matters at the end of the day is like there is not enough ecosystem. There's not enough content. There's not enough stuff to do to keep mm-hmm. people on set all day long. And it is too cumbersome to wear for like this everyday, all day use case that, it, that people yeah. are going. I think the next 20 years are going to be very much about headsets being really effective, like accessories. I mean, the Renew Ray-Ban glasses are quite interesting. That's more of an AI focused case. But to that point, like I always was like, okay, if I could do an immersive workout class for my house, we got the new MetaQuest 3. I'm sweating just sitting at my desk with it on. It's it's very heavy. Sure. And, and the sure. use case isn't there for that yet. I never really bought into the... VR workout thing. Yeah. Like, yes, Beat Saber is a ton of fun and you can work with a sweat doing it. But I did not want to sweat in that headset. No, like, nothing would be good. And so, and it's heavy. I mean, yeah. even it magically, like with the first version, we tried some like meditation, yoga, mm-hmm. but like you're really restricted in your movements based on like the weight distribution of the headset. Yeah. In the moment that the headset shifts, like you often lose tracking and, or head tracking or positional tracking. And so I didn't think we were there yet. Now, if you really light, lightweight glasses and you want to do a Pilates class, like that could make some sense yeah. to me. But I think the reality is like, I think world scale ARGs are going to come up in the next few years, which I'm really excited about. And I think that's super fun. And it's a great use of the technology to be additive and also inspire wonder. But I'm a huge believer in how important it is to have both practical and emotional appeal to actually move a market to mainstream. And so even though you have those great like additive entertainment experiences at theme parks or out in the wild as part of gamification, you're still going to need the practical uses of like, analyze what I have in my pantry and serve me up some recipes to be able to make dinner so that I don't have to go to the grocery store or like, show me where I'm going, like directions. 
I mean, probably like the best, most regularly used case of, of AR out there, right? It's because it's practical. So I think you need both. And I think accessory, like you're going to see the glasses in it as an accessory play. Like right now, it doesn't matter. No one's wearing that headset and walking around outside. No, no. I think I'm writing a piece right now on AI wearables and how there's been kind of this fight of those ones that just came out and they're smaller and it's kind of a different approach. But I was looking at the history of wearables and it's like, yeah, it's like my parents probably look back. They're like, that's weird that everyone walks around with AirPods in now, right? Like we all have these little devices stuck to our ears, but it's evolved kind of slowly in that sense. But I I truly don't believe fundamentally we're ever going to wear like massive goggles until it becomes something smaller, like some of these new AI developments. So I know we weren't set to talk about this, but I'd be curious if you have any thoughts on kind of the AI wearable trend and how that might have overlap with VR or not. I mean, AI is definitely like one of the tools in the the toolkit for for developing all this immersive tech. And I actually think it's quite complementary to to blockchain and helping sort of uncover security issues. And Mm -hmm. there's been even in our own community, like heated debate about use of of AI tools among creators and certain strikes in in Hollywood where image and likeness is like a huge concern that, you know, you're going to capture it once and then just it's going to be abused. And those are all real concerns where we see like a lot of adoption of it in the toolkit is in like the creation of NPC, uh, like non-player characters or companions or guides in a virtual environment. We saw a demo this morning, which I thought was really cool from one of our content partners a lot of times when you go into the, you're dropped into these like virtual environments, it's like, come to our thing, but you don't know where to go. You don't know where to go. You're like, like, okay, I'm here. And there's like some strangers over there. I might be able to talk to, but you're not really sure what to do. (laughs) Right. And so like simple addition of a greeter that is an AI based NPC that says like, Hey, what, you know, welcome. What made you join us today? And, And helps direct you to what you can do in a virtual environment is a really strong step in in the right direction. AI has been around for a long time. We just, in the last couple of years, or with ChatGPT, really, it was just like, holy hell. It appeared to have leaped so far because of its ability to like simulate a human response. But at the end of the day, those still have limitations. Like they're only as good as the data that's going in it. So if you don't constantly input new, robust, rich information into those LLMs, like the quality of their output in the public hands just spirals downward really, really quickly. We'll see a lot. There's no way around it. Like it's going to make building experiences a lot more efficient and cheaper. But I do think you're going to see, for as much as it helps creators in the early parts of the process get across concepts and determine whether they're worth building or not, or determine their art approach or whatever, you're going to see a lot that gets created a lot faster, but just like isn't great. Right. Just the middle, just a lot of done. Yeah, it's done, but it might not be like that perfect special vision that it takes a human. Or, I mean, Neil said this really well, and I think it was a really beautiful sentiment, which is like when I look at art and when I consume it at at a gallery, or I know that I'm like communing with the artist, like I'm connecting with another human who was going through something at a certain time and it comes through in the textures they chose, the colors they chose, whatever. There's a human to human connection there. And when you know that even if it's cool, like when you know that a machine outputs something, even if it's based on 
20% Picasso and 20% or whatever. It still was made by a machine. Like there's not like a... Yeah. There's not that emotional connection. Exactly. There's some really interesting studies that were done about AI dog companions with like the elderly. And it was about like, so they, they introduced this to the elderly and it was like a, I think it was a dog, but it was like a pet that was an AI based pet companion. And at first they really bonded and it really showed a lot of positive emotions and impact. But at some point it stopped progressing. Like the relationship kind of flatlines and you realize it's not an actual living thing. And you stop investing in it the way that you yeah. would in a relationship. And so I think that's interesting. That is um, interesting. Here. Yeah. When you think of kind of like the long-term vision for the metaverse and Laminal One, like what do you think it's going to take for it truly to go mainstream? I think that definitely the cost and complexity of building these experiences and navigating the, those sort of dominant platforms that are out there needs to come down. Like we need to have some common standards we make it really hard for creators to build things right now and port them easily for like the largest range of discoverability. And I, I think that's kind of limiting as much as the platforms are like dying for exclusives in order to really, you know, hit home a certain new feature set or their differentiators. It is really limiting to content creators and the whole ecosystem around metaverse. So because it just needs so many things to be working well, (laughs) in order for it to be really compelling. Like there's so many different contributors to that. So I think it's got to get, it'll continue to mature and the tech stack and tooling will get, will get better. And, and hopefully, you know, we standards are adopted and it becomes cheaper to make these experiences. But I also think it's going to take people thinking about how they make content, how they tell stories in a bit of a different way, accommodating for a lot of different ways that that story might be consumed. It's just really difficult to dominate via one platform and get a story out broad. Like nowadays, it's just so fragmented. So I think we have to like make it easier for great IP to propagate and be developed and pushed out to a bunch of different channels and platforms and sort of adapted dynamically because otherwise it's pretty stifled by not only the complexity and the cost, but then like the platforms themselves. And then, and then they deprecate and then you lose three years of work and you don't have a way to redistribute it. And so I think that's, we got to clean that up for sure. And then of course, like, even if they don't have great sales or whatever, or they're too expensive, this is all education and the education paves the way to lower customer acquisition costs and people being more willing to try things and all of that is a really critical piece of the puzzle, even if it results in like knee-jerk volatility, you know, to, well, it didn't perform the way that we thought it would perform. And so RIP, the RIP headlines have just had it with, but like, yeah, it's the, the, the metaverse is dead headlines. I mean, it's like every other week, you know, RIP artists, yeah. RIP coders, R- it's just exhausting. I love hyperbole <laughs> in that way because reality is much more boring. That's yeah. the truth. On that topic, what advice do you have for founders building metaverse use cases or building mixed reality applications? Kind of what advice would you share with someone that might have just seen the RIP headline? <laughs> well, I think it's like, look, too many people are invested in these technologies. Like even just when you look at cloud, cloud rendering and the progress with GPUs and, and 
chip makers, the emphasis on like being able to provide high fidelity, immersive 3D rich experiences, like this is where things are going. So you have to trust that things are going in that way, even if you have near-term doubters and, and haters. The thing that I would say that was always a bit of a point of contention in the early days of Magic Leap was like really great storytellers and really great game designers have a tendency to want to like build the big thing to move a whole market. It's like, we're going to build that one piece of content that's going to make everyone come to the table and change everything. Well, that one piece of content costs a fortune to make, and it takes a very long time to hit the market. And the truth is like, particularly for Magic Leap or in some of these emerging tech platforms, you don't have the volume on the other side, on the consumer side yet to really recoup the investment. And so you saw a lot of teams like scale up really quickly with VC investment and then be really disappointed that there wasn't a market on the other side. And then all these studios then shut down. So we adopted a bit of a different philosophy, which was like with Tonendi, which was a piece that I had done with a very small development team with Cigaros. We set a cap on like the amount of time that that project was going to take and the amount of investment. And then we went after a music partner because we thought music was immersive music and interactive music was going to be a great use case. So we went after a partner that was fundamentally progressive in how they used new technology. And we limited our time and our investment and tried to prove out that that was a really interesting new application to a segment of the population that maybe just tried it because they already love cigarettes. So I think finding those ways to stay nimble and efficient and try not to fall so in love with your idea that you fail to see the writing on the wall about where the market's at on the other end is, is important for young development teams. Those quick concepts are what everybody needs right now. What can I do with it? And like, how yeah. can you inspire awe and wonder? And if you see pickup, then you run with it. Or like if you're creating a project that has where you're building an immersive world and it's going to take you two years to build that, what can you build in? And you're already building all those 3D assets. How can you leverage some of the current technology and the current communities that are out there today to start to pull in that funding and pull in your revenue and start to propagate that story and see if there's interest and, and get people on board early? So it's just thinking about things a little bit a little bit differently because we see so many people that that aren't thinking about the economics and yeah. they just funding. And it's yeah. like they just want to change the world overnight, maybe. And it's a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful project. The cost to execute it is huge and you don't have the distribution and you need yeah. 50,000 headsets to do it. So you've got logistics. We always encourage creators when we meet with them at, you know, Venice Film Festival or Tribeca or whatever to think about how they can be more nimble and how they roll out a story and, and content and mitigate some other risk that investors feel when they're placing a, a bet. Well, Rebecca, this has been such a great conversation. For my final question, can you just share with our listeners how they can find you, find Lamina One, how maybe they can get involved if they're a founder building on this space and just how anyone listening can support Lamina One? Yeah, for sure. Thanks for asking. So our Discord is super active. There's a ton of genuine storytelling and metaverse enthusiasts. There are 51, over 51,000 of them. Wow. So I would say join our Discord. You also can try out the beta by going to limitone.com backslash hub and set up your own account and start to explore it and see what you can do there, even if you're just curious. And then we also will roll out grants for creators and for projects that we think really match our values and, and are thinking long-term about uh, high-quality content built on blockchain. So 
we have uh, we have resources to help support creators as well. Thank you. Yeah. Drop us a line in Discord for sure, and or or by one of the links on the site. Thank you for tuning in to Blockchain for the Billions. If you found this episode valuable, please consider sharing it with someone who could benefit or give it a shout out on your social platforms. To stay updated on the latest insights from Decasonic, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find in the show notes. Thank you for your support. Chat in the next episode.